0: A spokesman for the governor responded to the judge's decision earlier this month on Twitter, saying in part, our administration's response to the most recent incoherent, poorly reasoned decision. Welcome to the Political Notebook podcast. I'm Billy Robb. I'm a high school teacher.
1: And I'm Robert Robb, an editorial columnist for the Arizona Republic and Billy's
0: dad. I want to talk about education on this episode. And there are a couple new stories that we'll touch on. First, locally, locally. This week here in Arizona, uh, 26 school districts are asking voters to approve bonds and overrides for additional school spending. And then a few weeks ago, a federal judge made a controversial ruling on Prop 123 that won't immediately impact state education funding, but raises questions uh, for future spending decisions. And then I also wanna to touch on a few points uh, that you made dad in a column recently about uh, non-salary related teacher retention ideas, Uh, and then we'll finish with a round of Arizona-related quick-fire questions. So let's start with with bonds and overrides, and it seems to me that this isn't the happiest or most efficient way to fully fund our schools. Uh, We already have these huge discussions happening at the Capitol in Arizona over school spending. We elect lawmakers, and they set statewide taxing and and spending priorities, Uh, and then you see the districts going to local voters and asking them to approve additional spending that will come from their local property taxes. And, and and districts are saying that if they don't get the approval, there's going to be big consequences for their facilities, programs, and salaries. And to me, it just does not seem like fair to the schools to make them do that. It doesn't seem fair to the voters to, to kind of always be putting them on, on the hook over and over local and statewide uh, taxes. So first question is just why do schools need to ask for this additional spending Uh, and is there any realistic proposals or pathways to move away from the bonding system that we've got
1: the um, intent was to provide for some degree of um, local control Uh, and the ability to augment the main source of funding, which is the state finance formula. Um, And so uh, states can, excuse me, local school districts can ask local property tax voters to allow them to spend a little bit more on operational expenses, about 15% more than uh, the state formula uh, allows for, And to ask local property taxpayers to pay for some school construction that the state doesn't uh, provide for. Um, Those were intended to be supplemental uh, to a state financing commitment uh, that would be adequate uh, to fund education. After the recession for many years, the state uh, was holding the line on operating uh, uh, expenditures uh, for schools and basically zeroed out um, state funding for capital improvements. So what was intended to be supplemental um, became instead something for the necessities, um, and school districts asked local taxpayers to compensate Uh, for the cutbacks that were occurring at the state level. Uh, I believe that the most equitable way to proceed and the one that would be best for students would be to simply move all funding up to the state level and to make it a per-pupil grant for all purposes, operational and capital, and have it go to whatever school, um, either... Uh, district school or charter school that the student and his or her parents uh, choose. Uh, There are proposals to get more funding at the state level, which theoretically would reduce the extent to which local taxpayers are asked to pay for essentials rather than supplementals. Uh, There really aren't um any realistic proposals to do what i think is the ultimate solution which is to take all the funding up to the state level adequately fund it and then distribute it on a pure per pupil basis without any opportunity for augmentation at the local level
0: so if that if if your idea of moving it all to the state were to happen you would say don't even allow for additional local taxation no, because because, whistles, because you would you would be exception?
1: moving the property taxes that we're currently leveling to support schools up to the state level, or replace the property tax with income and sales tax revenue, whatever and, the mix is. But you can't create uniformity, and you can't make a competitive market work for students uh, if you allow people to. Funded outside of that system, and it's also uh, results in a reduction in pressure to adequately fund things at
0: the state level. Right,
1: right, right. If if local property taxpayers
0: can be asked to step into the breach, yeah. And then with 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 our open enrollment system, where you can send your kids to any district school and with a lot of charter schools out there that don't get the benefit of that you really aren't necessarily i mean you're making the people that are physically living in that lo- location to fund it with property taxes but there's no you know there's really no it's not like you're the people there are necessarily sending their kids to that physical yeah uh, that's a f- that's- very good
1: point with open enrollment and I, I forget what the exact figure is but but uh, somewhere in the vicinity of half of the students attend a school other than the district school within the geographical boundaries in which they reside. Um, so yes, we've we've sort of broken that tie between the local property taxpayer and the schools that
0: that property tax would support. And some people will say, well, maybe that's part of the problem is we're is we're not putting pouring our money into local things. But if you're if it's all coming from the state level, anyways, you would. Decrease the need to even ask local property owners to to pay more in general. Yeah, pre, think, pre, pre,
1: presuming that you did increase the funding at the state right, right, right. enough to subsume. But then
0: there's always going the I mean, there's work. always going to be additional repairs that are going to be needed. Someone's going to want to fund this new or different kind of educational program or add a new building specifically for this you say there's going to be there would be like a grant system where you have to apply to get those well, now, we, you...
1: we, we currently have that that was um, what the state used to pay for after a 1990s state supreme court decision uh, obligating them to um, for major repairs at existing schools and Uh, the construction of new schools where there is enrollment growth. As a result of the uh, recession, the state got out of that business almost entirely. And that's what has generated the proliferation of these bond proposals um, at the local school district level. Uh, The state is back in the business of both building new schools and paying for major repairs to existing schools. It used to be done through a formula um, in terms of the major repairs to existing schools. During the recession, the state shifted to a grant program in in which you do have to apply. The money doesn't flow automatically. Uh, That was sparsely funded to begin with. Uh, the state legislature and the governor have increased fairly substantially the funding available to do that. It's still sort of a new system that's being um, going through a shakedown cruise. I don't know that we can point to what currently exists and, and to say that ensures that the need will be met at the state level. Um, but certainly there's been substantial strides made to make the funding for major repairs to existing schools available at the state level.
0: There was some reporting in by the uh, Arizona center of investigative reporting, uh, Evan Wiggley, I, I think that's how you say his last name uh, in 2017 about the, the funding, the campaign funding for these bonds and overrides are, were, were being done by construction companies. And, uh, Justin Olson has a, uh, new nonprofit about school choice stuff and he wrote a follow-up report sort of confirming that that's still happening is that the fact that construction companies are are footing the bill for these campaigns is that like a red flag that maybe construction is happening that's not necessary or is, is that raise any concerns for you
1: i'm not as alarmed about that as others um People who – funding for campaigns come from people who support the idea or believe that they have a business opportunity as a result of it. Uh, It's unsurprising to me that um, most of the funding for um, school district bond elections comes from construction companies. The reporting has also indicated that the companies who provide that funding – Uh, tend to get the contracts uh, for the building that takes place. Um, That certainly raises an eyebrow, um, but uh, I haven't seen anything that suggests that there's any monkey business going on in the bidding process. Um, And it's unsurprising to me, as I say, that that's where the source of funding would go to create that business opportunity from the standpoint of the construction companies they still have to be approved by local voters. So you've got the independent judgment of the local voters. And uh, certainly the history of this has been that these things tend to pass, that, that these are opportunities to increase funding for schools that most voters feel favorably disposed
0: towards. The other issue with the funding formula that I think is confusing for people and I think it gets either intentionally or or accidentally Misportrayed is the fact that uh, if you is, is the disparities between the formula for charter schools and district schools, because if you're just looking at how much the schools get per pupil from the general fund from the state, charter schools are getting more of that. So so some people say oh charter schools are getting more state funding, but if you look at uh, overall like total taxpayer money, including these local bonds and overrides and like capital expenses, you know, charters don't get any money for building costs and expenses. They just get a a per pupil sum. But so that, so even though charters get less overall funding per pupil, they get more from the general fund. And I think that gets, that gets, uh, kind of manipulated a lot i think a lot of people have the impression that charters get get more funding is there any i mean how would you simplify the formula or make it more understandable or is any is there any like legislative um other than retooling the whole formula is there any way to make that more equitable or at least you know you, you more could transparent it,
1: the way in which basic state aid is calculated uh, for school districts, is you've got a certain amount per pupil that the state says will get to the school district. You then have a state-designated property tax, local property tax, that this is separate and apart from the overrides and the bonds we're talking about. This is part of the basic state aid formula.
0: That gets all pooled together?
1: Well, yeah. So, 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 so you have a a, a legislatively determined uh, property tax. It's called the qualifying tax rate. And so state aid, coming from the general fund, is the difference between what the overall spending amount is and what is raised from that local property tax. Now, that's called a local property tax, and it's not included in the calculation that you mentioned because that money reduces uh, what uh, the uh, districts get from the state general fund. But it is, in reality, a state property tax. Um, So you could very easily actually levy the tax, bring that money into the general fund, and then distribute the whole amount of uh the funding to the school districts that would greatly reduce the apparent but misleading discrepancy Mm -hmm. uh, between uh, what charters get from the general fund and what school districts get from the general fund Um, again to me the ideal answer is to take all the funding up to the state level not create separate capital and operating just put it all into one grant that goes to whatever school uh, the uh, student uh, ends up attending, uh, then that there'd be no question that charters and districts are being funded on an equal basis. And I think it's also uh, worth uh, stating uh, that uh, the proof of who's getting more money under the existing system is that the charters would be delighted um, right, with right. that change And the school districts would fight it to the death.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I don't know how that would, I mean, maybe you'd need some compromise with accountability or or something. I mean, how would you compromise to get that Well, it, it, it would have to be in the context of getting
1: substantially more funding available for all schools at the state level. So, that there are no financial or very few financial losers from doing that. If you, if you just took the existing funds, took them all up to the state level, and reallocated them, yeah, yeah. Uh, the traditional districts would get substantially less and charters would get substantially more. So, you gotta add enough money so you can at least bring the district schools up to where the
0: charters would be under a truly equitable distribution right. system so let's transition and and talk about this controversial lawsuit just a quick background so in uh 2014 the the state faced a lawsuit over not uh properly funding the schools and not increasing to match when inflation was going to be this was in the wake of the financial crisis and governor ducey developed uh, a proposed settlement that would increase the amount of money that the state takes from the uh, land trust that we have uh, to pay for schools. That was called Prop One Twenty Three. Uh, it was put to the voters. The voters approved it. So we're now drawing a higher percentage from our land trust to pay for schools, uh, and the arrangement uh, set to go until twenty twenty-five. Um, someone brought a, lo- a lawsuit to the settlement, the Prop 123 settlement, saying the state didn't have the power to change the land draw trust um, because of the way it was established in our um, original, you know, state arrangement with the Constitution. Um, a judge recently, this last month, ruled uh, against the state, saying that we had illegally drawn... Uh, the increased money from our land trust. Um, and most of the media attention uh, around it and the analysis of it was, was really generated towards uh, Governor Ducey's response to the ruling because he, he could personally attack the the judge, which came across as kind of like a Trumpy Trumpist reactions, kind of the, um, the reaction. And um, maybe I'm wrong about this. Maybe people will you know, call me on social media or give me, evidence of, that I'm wrong, but I didn't see a single story in the media that was actually breaking down the substance of the lawsuit and the factual basis of lawsuit, except for your column that, that you wrote about it. And you wrote analysis saying that there were factual errors in the ruling and explaining what those errors were. Um, but, uh, but but that's 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 all I saw in terms of the analysis. And You are basically saying Ducey's points were right. So, I, I mean, I just saw um, – I mean, you had a lot of Democrats attacking Ducey for Prop 123 on its, like, face, even though it had bipartisan support when it passed, and it was passed by the majority of Arizona voters. So, I mean, it just seemed to me that it was dramatized and politicized uh, all across the board on what was – you know, on its face, just like a legal decision that's going to have some consequences for us moving forward. Um, so I don't know, what's, from, from your perspective, like right now, cutting out all the, all the noise and the accusations and the, and the divisions that were thrown around, what are some of the most important things people should know about um, the land trust, that ruling, and, and what's going to be, what's, what are the effects from that Prop 123 funding moving forward? The the legal uh, issue before Wake uh,
1: was this. Uh, the state land trust is established both by an act of Congress and, when we were granted statehood and in the state constitution. So if it is going to be changed, it has to be changed both places. In 1999... Um, Arizona changed the distribution formula for the state land trust, and and the schools are the principal beneficiary of that trust. Congress, in approving that, um, referenced the section of the state constitution where the distribution formula is to be found. So the legal question before uh, Wake uh, was, uh, when Congress did that, did they mean to only approve the change that was before them at the time? Or did they intend to defer to the state and approve any changes that the state makes in the future to basically get out of the business of always having to go to Congress to approve any changes that we want to make? Now, um, that's a, a question that I think can be decided either way. The problem with Wake's decision uh, is that Congress subsequent to the lawsuit being filed went ahead and approved that the change uh, that the state made was okay. So that should have been moot. That, 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 that
0: should have resulted in the case being thrown out. And that was a thing that kind of got retroactively put into the omnivus yes. uh, f- funding bill. Right. Okay.
1: Now, Um, rather than dismiss it
0: um, flake uh, excuse me wake but but the isn't that kind of an admission that like getting that they were were trying to say they didn't need to do that but they did it anyways they got it changed by congress anyways just in case
1: Uh, well to get rid of this lawsuit um so if if you can get congress to do something that makes the lawsuit go Mm -hmm. away even if you don't think it's necessary it's Politically prudent right. to get Congress right. to do yeah. it. Um, so uh, rather than dismiss it as moot, um, Wake kept it. And and his argument for keeping it uh, was that um, Ducey and the state legislature hate education. It's a really political decision. Hate education. Can't be expected to adequately fund it and are a ever-present danger to uh, further raid the state trust land now in doing that he um, made numerous factual mistakes about um this, what, what what has happened with education finance in arizona probably the most consequential one that was relevant was that he flatly states in his decision Uh, that increased funding from the state land trust was the only source of funding to settle the lawsuit. And that's utterly untrue. There was also a commitment to additional general fund funding. And subsequent to that point, uh, the general fund additional funding for education has been increased dramatically over what was required by uh, the settlement. The most fundamental problem with Wake's position and the one that's most important for people to understand, because this is a mistake that's widely um, held and shared, uh, is his argument that Prop 123 resulted in a raid on the principle of the state land trust, that we're, we're taking from future generations to, to meet obligations that the state legislature isn't willing to meet today. But in reality, the uh, return on investment for the state trust land still exceeds uh, the increased distribution. So not only are we uh, not rating uh, the principal of the trust, retained earnings that should be being distributed to the schools now aren't being distributed. We're still fattening Uh, the principal on a going-forward basis. Uh, In reality, the schools were getting shortchanged uh, by distributions from the State Land Trust for many years. And Prop 123 put the distribution about in the arena that it should have been all along. Uh, and, And so... Uh, To me, that is the most fundamental misunderstanding, and uh, Wake's position has been based upon that fundamental misunderstanding of what's happening with the state land trust. So I don't approve of the language that the governor uh, used and the fact that rather than being fact-specific, he um, engaged in generalized invective and 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 personal in, yeah. invective um, but the reality is is that um, there are problems with standing there's problems with failure to accept the m- muteness uh, there are uh, factual uh, uh, lack of foundation uh, for his perspective ruling which is if you want to change the formula in the future you got to go to Congress first, um, but more, most importantly, that there is a harm occurring
0: mm-hmm.
1: that is not in fact occurring.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I wish, and maybe that's. I mean, I wish Ducey's team could have could have even if they felt personally attacked, could have responded more respectfully to that. And even even you could even make a they could have even used it to make a conservative case about state and local you know control over. You well, know what we I agree that Ducey should
1: have shown, and his team should have shown more forbearance, but it is true that mm-hmm. that the the wake decision personally attacked yeah. the governor,
0: and that's I think that's also why you didn't see any analysis like what we just talked about when you wrote about your column of the the factual nature of it because all the news stories were. Mm-hmm about the attack, about the personal attack. Oh my gosh, such a personal attack. And then you had people saying, you know, no, you shouldn't have done that. And, you know, I know this judge and I like and so it. So the analysis kind of got lost in all that. Uh, so it's, it's, it's good to be able to, to kind of break through that. Uh, and then kind of a big picture question also is, is, is this likely to get extended? in in 2025 says, you know, it's, I think 3.5 billion over 10 years is supposed to come from that. It's, you know, when it, when it expires, is that just going to go away? How are we going to fill that gap? I, people talk about a cliff when,
1: when it expires after, after 10 years, I'm not sure that there is a cliff, uh, because it goes away The previous distribution formula, which set it at 2.5%, which would be seriously underfunding what schools should be getting in terms of distributions from the trust, that also goes away, which means that we're back to the 1999 formula, which was based upon a record of um, returns to the trust over a period of time. So I've not carefully examined it. Um, but it may be that we could live with the 1999 formula, which would be reinstated on a going-forward basis. Um, certainly, I think, uh, if the rate of return remains as high as it is, and it's over the last 10 years, it's exceeded 9% per year. It's been one of the few public funds that have done well in terms of, of um, return on investment. Um, but if that remains the case, then I, I don't think there will be much difficulty if there's a need to extend it. Um, to extend it, um, but it may be that we don't face the cliff that everybody's talking about. Yeah.
0: Well, just um, before we get to some some quick fire questions in Arizona, I just wanted to, you know, the fun, fun, funding is is hugely important, I think, and educating well, having resources you need. Uh, having uh, qualified and competent and, and excellent teaching in the classroom, you, know, you need to you need to pay for that stuff. Um, but the, you know the issue and problem of teacher retention isn't just financial. It's also you know working conditions have a have a big effect too. And I I think even if you know bernie sanders is is campaigning on promising a $60,000 starting salary across the nation uh for for teachers but like even if even if that was the starting salary i i honestly don't think it would budge that much uh the the teachers that you could hire because of the conditions and you had you had a couple good ideas for 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 tweaks that that were happening uh just quickly what what were the the three main teacher retention ideas you had that were not related to you to to me
1: to me the most important one is to shrink the job Um, in order for a teacher to do well everything that a teacher is asked to do it's a 60 to 80 hour a week job and I think you're right no amount of money uh, is going to compensate for that and so I think that that schools need to do a time management study and to look at everything that they ask a teacher to do and determine realistically how much time would it take to do that uh, and uh, reduce the hours that are required on the job to something that's reasonable it's something in the 40 to 50 hour a week range um I also think that we need to reverse the decision that was made uh, to put the principal uh, responsibility for maintaining discipline on teachers. I mean, it used to be that that was something that the administration handled. You had an unruly kid, you sent him to the principal, and certainly my generation is (laughs) familiar with that phenomenon Um, now we regard sending a kid to the principal as a sign of failure uh, the teacher to control the classroom that's unfair to the teacher it's unfair to the other students who may want to learn and then uh, last not pass on students uh, that don't have the basic skills um, reading comprehension uh, and basic math skills sufficient to do the work at the next level. Um, So that that we're... I mean, that's, again, unfair to teachers to send them on, kids who are unprepared to work at that level. It's unfair to the other students as well. And most importantly, it's most unfair to the students who are being passed on without acquiring those basic skills. Yeah, I
0: think that last one also ties into your... the the proposals you've made for uh, testing as well, for, like, simplifying, simplifying, simplifying these tests. So it's like, can you read at this level, yes or no? And if you can, you know, because I think it gets to the point where, you know, teachers being able to differentiate between two students and groups of students is a part of the job. Like, um, if you're at a little bit different level, you might have to approach them in different ways. But if their reading level is so off, uh, you know, especially for for me at like a social studies level um, it, it 's the point where you might have to create totally different lessons within the same class with different different texts and and then you're basically doubling up uh the job so i think I think a lot of those those things we you know weave been together obviously discipline is maybe a different a different level, but you know simplifying the test scores focusing on on getting, getting students at the right level, um, I think, would be would make a big difference. I, I, I was uh, in agreement with, with the points you made there. and um, But that's got to happen at the, at the district and, and very local levels. I mean, you can't really. The
1: testing needs to come at the state level. The other two things districts and charter systems could do on their own. They, yeah. they, they could do the time management audit reduce what they expect to a reasonable level they could again put the emphasis on discipline back uh, at at the administration
0: level. and I think a lot of I mean just asking teachers what what would help in terms of time management I mean there's a wealth of information right there and and uh, I think teachers often feel like they're you know on the back burner and not even consulted on you know issues that affect them Every day, so I think I think even maybe even showing them the res, showing teachers respect and involve them and in in, in in things like that would would help. Uh, well, certainly
1: teachers would know if, you know if if you gotta get if you gotta get rid of 20, 25 hours a week, teachers would be the best ones to ask as to what are you currently doing that we could get rid of. Um, what's the least important thing to you doing your job? So I agree as part of, after you do the time management analysis, yeah. the first place to start in terms of shrinking the job is to consult the existing faculty.
0: So let's go to finish up here with some quick fire questions. Uh, first state, uh, state lawmakers are kind of aiming at a, a Tucson idea to create uh, they want to create a sanctuary city in Tucson so there's some dispute over that that uh, that initiative that's that's being um, put into place. Do you think you think cities should have uh, the the right to, to become sanctuary cities? And what's your take on the on the state sort of maybe trying to impose their will on cities in Arizona? Um, I, I don't think that cities
1: should be able to opt out of. Um, cooperating with the enforcement of federal uh, law um, they can um, uh, the barrier to that is a state law that's been passed that's been upheld by um, the U.S. Supreme Court uh, that requires a degree of cooperation and a and and not simply turning a closed uh, eye a blind eye to illegal immigration in all
0: circumstances second question is about uber i was taking an uber to the airport the other day and i asked the uber driver their perspective on this new proposed fee they are very upset by it um who's bringing this who's bringing this uh tax or fee on on uber and um do you think it'll it'll stick around do you think it'll pass
1: it it the Phoenix City Council has approved it once. They improperly noticed it, so they've got to do a redo in December, and I don't think there's any question that they will keep it. Um, the city is trying to pretend like it's a user fee, um, that they're simply charging people to pay for the infrastructure that they use. Um, but it's uh, clearly a uh, not a user fee. It's a tax, and it's a tax that's Designed to serve liberal ends. And one of them is to disadvantage Uber Uber drivers um, compared to taxi drivers because taxis who don't create any less wear and tear on airport infrastructure are actually going to be charged less. Both of them are being (laughs) overcharged because the lion's share of the money is going to go to. subsidize the operating costs of the SkyTrain and and both the taxis and and Uber and Lyft drop their uh, passengers off and pick them up at the terminal. I mean, (laughs) their passengers aren't using SkyTrain, so people who don't use SkyTrain are going to be charged for it and people who don't use it aren't.
0: All right, last question, Phoenix Suns question. Um, I'm a little bit cautious to fully uh, appreciate this new reality where the suns are good, suns are four and four and two right now. Um, do you think this early success is gonna, is gonna last, maybe even to making the playoffs this year? Well, I I will kick it
1: back to you in terms of the playoff prediction. Um, But I am impressed at the depth of of the team and have to give um, new general manager James Jones uh, credit. Uh, It seems like they are very deep, um, and uh, give uh, Coach Williams credit, they're playing hard. So um, certainly they are now watchable, which is (laughs) a difference. But I kick it back to you. No, is I, there I, enough of a difference to make the playoffs?
0: I I I think there there could be, especially with some other teams a little bit a little bit down right now. I think they're they're tough. They play well together. Coach has got them in a good in a good system. Every one of them uh can shoot except for point except for, <laughs> except for the point guard, but he can make free throws and, and uh it's uh and we and we're not even at full strength. Uh Ayton is is still out for 20 more games. We have a point guard that we that we drafted is apparently right in that mold. Great shooter, tough tough player, unselfish player. That's still that's still waiting to waiting to come back. So optimism uh, all around here for <laughs> for the Suns. Go Suns! Um, well, thanks everyone for listening to the Political Notebook podcast. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher. Overcast, Spotify, or any other podcasting app. Thanks.